most important thing in life is to know yourself. Mm. You've got to understand who you are, what what your goals are, what your limitations are, what's going on inside of you that's orchestrating your life. And one of the biggest ways to do that is to understand how your brain works. Why are we obsessed with the things that we want and bored when we get them? Why is addiction perfectly logical to an addict? And why does love change so quickly from passion to disinterest? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 66 of the Neuro Experience Podcast. I'm Louisa Nicola. I am your host. And today we have a world-renowned expert on the molecule of dopamine. Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman has stopped by to talk about success, love, relationships, liberals, conservatives, and your brain. I want to formally welcome you to the Neuro Experience Podcast. Thank you so much for being on here, Daniel. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Look, I'm going to start by asking you uh, a question that I ask everybody who comes onto the podcast, and it is, how do you start your day? I start my day with a good breakfast, a brisk walk from the metro station, and checking my email. A brisk walk? To, so you don't have any type of practices like meditation or, you know, breathing exercises? You get straight into your day? I try to do about 10 or 15 minutes of meditation around lunchtime Fantastic. Um, rather than in the morning. Fantastic. Um, it always inspires me. I mean, look, your book inspired me completely, um, The Molecule of More. I was very inspired um, and it got me delving deeper into the dopamine. Okay, into dopamine and the role it plays in making an elite athlete better. Because obviously with the Neuro Experience podcast and with Neuro Athletics, my company, I work a lot with high-level athletes. And once I read your book around you know, dopamine and how um, the role it plays in success, I became immediately hooked, which is why I wanted to get you on here. So can you talk to me about why you focused your book on the influence of dopamine? You know, it really goes back to uh, my training as a psychiatrist. Mm. Um, I was a resident at New York University, and I studied a lot of psychiatric illnesses that were a result of problems with the dopamine system. These include things like schizophrenia, drug addiction, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, Parkinson's Mm. disease. And on the surface, it seems as if these things absolutely have nothing in common. And I dug a little bit trying to figure out why it is that they're all caused by the same neurotransmitter and really couldn't find anything. After I finished my training, I came to George Washington University to join the faculty and I developed this terrible fear that someday a student was going to ask me that question and I wouldn't know the answer. So I spent a little bit more time researching it and the things that I found were so fascinating and so relevant beyond psychiatric illnesses that I felt like I had to share it with the world. Wow. It's what's been some of the biggest breakthroughs and and insights that you've had when you were going through your um, research? Because if I correct me if I'm wrong, you've written over 132 peer reviewed articles. Is this correct? 
It, not quite that many, no. Probably closer to about 50. 50, okay. So that's still a, a massive number. <laughs> so it was still pretty tough. It took a long time. So what, um, what's been the biggest insights that you've found? I came into this. I, I spent a lot of time working in the field of addictions. Um, and drugs are addictive because they trigger dopamine. And so I came in with the idea that dopamine was the pleasure molecule, mm-hmm. basically sex and drugs and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what most people who have heard about dopamine think about when they think about that molecule. What mm-hmm. I found out was that that was only a very small piece of the puzzle, that dopamine really isn't about re- being rewarded for what you have done. It's about the desire and the motivation to get things that you do not have. And that turned out to be critically important because when we want something, when we're working for something, we get a lot of dopamine and that gives us enthusiasm, excitement, and energy. But Mm -hmm. dopamine is only about the future. It's not able to process circuits in the brain that manage the present. And so as soon as what we want becomes what we have, Dopamine shuts down, and part of living a successful, fulfilling life is understanding how to manage that transition when dopamine does shut down. It's That is so interesting because I have a philosophy, and I believe that when it comes to great work and living in the flow state or the peak performance state, I believe that you need to be in the present moment. And what you're saying is um, when we're in the present moment, we are – we have no dopamine. Yeah, and you know, I wouldn't go as far as to say no, but it's certainly not the ascendant neurotransmitter. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the peak flow state. Mm. Um, you know, that's one of the best possible states to be in, mm. and it's rare and very difficult to achieve. Mm. Usually, dopamine and the neurotransmitters in the brain, the process information in the present are in opposition to one another. One suppresses the other. Either you're thinking about what you're going to do or you're thinking about what you're doing. There are a very few exceptions to that rule though and the flow state is one of them. That's when the two of them are working in beautiful harmony together. It's very hard to get into that state, which is why we need to do a lot of training in order to get there. And, you know, I've looked deep into it. You know, you can go into studies and look at people like Michael Jordan back in the day. And they used to, you know, that's how they coined the term. They believed that he was in that flow state, you know, in complete harmony where everything was just flowing nicely. Um, So I think there is this misconception about dopamine. I think we don't know as a, you know, general population, we don't know too much about it. We just think... You know, we want to be happy, so how can we increase that? Oh, it must be dopamine, so let's have a maybe a hit of sugar. Let's, I don't know, let's go and laugh. Is it as easy as that, or is there more to it? Uh, there's a lot more to it. I think that uh, the first step in understanding your mind and understanding how to get the most out of it is to distinguish two kinds of happiness. Dopaminergic happiness is when we are filled with excitement and enthusiasm. We're looking forward to something wonderful that's going to come. Um, This is something uh, before a big event, before a party, let's say on Christmas Eve. 
But there's a different kind of happiness uh, associated with the here and now chemicals in the brain. That kind of happiness is more associated with feelings of satisfaction, contentment, and fulfillment. When you have that kind of happiness, you're not lacking anything as you are with dopamine happiness. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of happiness that I think we don't appreciate quite as much in our modern culture, which is very much about getting more, more, more. But ultimately, it's the only kind of happiness that will bring long-term satisfaction. We have to learn not only how to desire more of what we don't have, but also how to appreciate the things that we do have. So in your book, you've got a statistic around bipolar disorder. And I believe you stated that around 4.4% of um, the US population is currently suffering from bipolar disorder. And it got me thinking about depression um, and all sorts of um, mental illnesses and the role that dopamine plays in that. So do you think, so what's the relationship of dopamine and bipolar disorder? We don't understand everything about bipolar disorder in terms of what is going wrong with the brain. But one thing we do know that there are certain states in which dopamine is pretty much out of control. Um, we call this mania or hypomania. Mm -hmm. The manic state is characterized by some things that are good. Uh, when people are manic, they're full of energy. They're full of motivation. They think real fast. They're witty. They're smart. They're funny. And they're creative. All of these things are the positive side of dopamine, but there's a dark side as well. They can be impulsive and self-destructive. They can engage in pleasure-seeking, um, such as sex, food, drugs, illegal activities. They can engage in these activities to the point of potentially ruining their lives, emptying their bank accounts, telling their boss what they really feel about him. So... Um, the relationship is that bipolar mania is dopamine at its most intense, both the good and the bad. So obviously it's manageable. So what about when you, you know, when you go to manage something like this, and, and I want to get into this further with depression as well, when you manage this, um, whether it's done via medication or whether it's done holistically, are you tapping into the dopamine receptors? You are. When you're treating mania, um, you give medications that really shut down the dopamine system because you really want to bring a manic episode to a stop as soon as possible before it destroys somebody's life. But then after you've treated the mania and you get somebody back to a normal mood, the next step is to maintain that normal mood long term. And we don't always use anti-dopaminergic drugs for that. Um, we may use something that affects the brain in a much more complex way, such as lithium. And this is an area of bipolar disorder that's less well understood. Mm. And what about depression? Because I know it's... You know, I, I, I haven't really researched too much into it, but I know that you've probably got some insights into the role of dopamine and um, depression and the link between those two. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, most people who are familiar with treatment for depression are familiar with a class of drugs called the serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors, yes. the SSRIs. Um, for example, Zoloft, Prozac, Lexapro. Now, these treat depression not via the dopaminergic pathway, 
but via the here and now pathway. And oftentimes what they do is they give people the feeling that everything is okay. Sometimes when people are depressed, they have very little resilience to stress. One of my patients once said, when an ordinary person gets a flat tire, they call the AAA. When I get a flat tire, I call the suicide hotline. And what SSRIs do is they help people with that. Um, They say, be content, be satisfied, everything is okay. Now, we also have medications, um, for example, a drug called Wellbutrin, Mm -hmm. that take a complementary approach. They approach things from the dopamine point of view. And this might be used for a slightly different flavor of depression. We might think about a dopaminergic approach, not for somebody who feels the world is too much for them, but for somebody who feels the world is flat and gray and dull. And what a more dopaminergic antidepressant like Wellbutrin is going to do is it's going to increase their engagement with the world. It's going to increase their interest about things, their ability to derive pleasure from things, and their ability to, once again, carry out their daily activities. So depending on the patient, we may approach it from the here and now neurotransmitters or the dopamine neurotransmitters, and they seem to work about equally well. So what you're saying is depression comes in the form of a, you know, there's a imbalance in dopamine. Is that correct? You know, th- that may be a little bit simplistic. Yes. Um, the brain is so complicated that we tend to be really careful when we're talking about causes. Mm-hmm. You know, we can say very generally it's a dysfunction of brain circuits. And if we want to be more specific, we would say in some cases we are able to measure dopamine abnormalities, but we wouldn't go so far as to say that's the definitive and only cause of depression. Well, the reason I ask is because I believe there's, you know, you, you read a lot in the media and you, you some people are, you know, must, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, you're either born with it or I'm, I'm interested to know how one person can be incredibly happy. And this is not to say that they've been, you know, partying, taking drugs or doing anything abnormal. Some days, you know, they're happy and then other days they're sad. And that's what I really want to tap into because I know a lot of my listeners are the everyday, you know, fitness enthusiast and a lot of people, especially now with the rise of social media, you know, a lot of people do seem to... Uh, I wouldn't say go in and out of depression, but we do seem, you know, there's depression is probably rising. And I want to know, is that the role that dopamine is playing in our lives? Dopamine is very much of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it can excite us and motivate us to do things that will make us happy. For example, training for a race or working out because somebody wants to feel great and look great. But The other side of the coin is the social media coin, that dopamine can also make us very dissatisfied. It's hard to get motivated for a better future unless we are somewhat dissatisfied with the present. And it really gets down to the carrot and the stick. If you do things because you want a better future, you're following the carrot. If you're spending all of this time on social media, Um, getting a very filtered view of other people's lives Mm -hmm. and you're feeling like, oh my God, everybody's life is better than mine. That's also dopamine, but it's the stick. It's the punishment aspect of dopamine saying you're not good enough Mm -hmm. and in order to avoid being miserable, you need to get up and do things. 
So dopamine is neither good nor bad. Um, it's very powerful, very beneficial, but also dangerous. Wow. I, um, I have a lot of things to say on um, social media and dopamine and the role it plays in negative self-talk and how you view the world. Um, so thank you for clearing that up. Now I want to move into success because I know in your book you speak a lot about sex, addiction, and success. So can you tap into more of that with me, please? Sure. Um, you know, you talked about people being born with certain characteristics, mm. and some people are just naturally born with a more active dopamine system, and the odds are that these people are going to be more successful than those who have a weaker dopamine system. What? They're going to be... That's yeah, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that's why... Um, things like entrepreneurialism, um, artistic creativity, business acumen. That's why these things often run in families. Um, the offspring, in fact, of people with bipolar disorder are more likely to become entrepreneurs than people in the general population. So to some degree, it's a genetic sweepstakes. But before you start envying people with lots of dopamine, let's look at that a little bit more carefully. People with lots of dopamine achieve great things, but they're often unhappy. If we think about the entrepreneur who does nothing but work, um, he's at the office while other people are home enjoying time with family and friends. Mm -hmm. If we think about the genius physicist who discovers a new particle, this is a guy who doesn't have a lot of friends. He's probably very awkward socially, and he doesn't want to do anything except to spend time in his laboratory. A lot of times he doesn't even take showers or comb his hair. Think about the brilliant artist. Um, this is a guy that's very, very hard to live with. He's probably bad-tempered, selfish, and doesn't care about anything except his art. Mm. So one of the things about highly dopaminergic people is that they serve society very, very well. They create things we've never seen before. They invent technologies that revolutionize the world. But even though they're wonderful for society, it may not be so great for the individual. These people are often lonely, dissatisfied, and unhappy. So success and happiness don't always go together. Um, the person who is most able to afford the house on the beach may be the person who's least able to enjoy it. Wow, you've just made a brilliant distinction and link between happiness and success. So how does one manage this? If somebody is born with that, you know, higher, what, what did, how did you refer to it? Dopamine. Very active dopamine active, system, yes. yeah. How, how do they manage that? How do they stay in a constant state of success whilst also maintaining happiness? So it's a difficult thing to do, and it, it takes a lot of hard work. But you, you know the answer to that question. You've got to do exercises that allow you to spend more time in the here and now. Meditation is the most powerful, but it, it's also very, very difficult. It is. Um, you know, you, you, you can't tell someone, okay, just go meditate. Just go clear your thoughts and think of nothing. Um, if people want to meditate, they really need to get into it slowly or they're going to get frustrated. I think another thing that people should do is as they're going through their day, 
ask themselves, is this a dopaminergic moment or is this a here and now moment? Um, if they're working towards something, if they're writing something, if they're planning something, that's a dopaminergic moment. Live in the future. Get excited. But if they're talking to a friend or a family member, if they're eating a meal, if they're walking through the woods, that's a here and now moment. Stop thinking about what you're going to make for dinner. Stop thinking about what your next workout is going to be and look around you. Focus on your senses. What are you hearing, seeing, smelling? Uh, if you're talking to someone, don't think about what you're going to think of what you're going to say next. Hear them with 100% of your attention. That's going to be your road to happiness. Look, I'm telling you, if everybody in the world could listen to those three little nuggets of advice, I think the world would be a better place. If everybody's living in the present moment, I think everybody would be um, living a more happier life. Um, they'd be better humans because you'd be hearing people, validating people, and probably having less accidents on the road as well if they're in the present moment. You know, listening to someone with 100% of your attention is very, very powerful, and it's rare. It's mm -hmm. rare. When someone else is talking, it's very common for our mind to wander. Some people think that one of the biggest effect, uh, one, of, one of the biggest um, drivers of success in psychotherapy is simply the experience of being in a room with another person who is giving you 100% of their attention. It's very, very powerful. I love that. And this brings me into my final topic with you, and that's relationships. Now, is it true that the honeymoon stage, which is the first, I would say, three to six months of a relationship, is that just an influx of dopamine and then you then it depletes because you're used to somebody? Or what is the role that um, dopamine plays in relationships? Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> you know, if we think about, <laughs> if we think about love, we can think about two different kinds of love. The first is passionate love, and that's what we describe as being in love, and that's a very dopaminergic place. It's all about more. It's all about fantasizing about a perfect future that's going to go on forever and is going to be associated with ecstasy. Um, Helen Fisher, uh, who's a scientist who's done a lot of research in this, describes it as the peak experience of life. Um, there may be nothing better than being in love. The problem is it only lasts for about 12 months. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, this beautiful future that we imagine with our dopamine circuits becomes the present and dopamine turns off. And when that happens, a lot of times the relationship ends. And this is particularly true with highly dopaminergic people. Um, they think, okay, I'm not in love anymore. I need to find somebody new. But really what's supposed to happen is that passionate love is supposed to involve the I'm sorry evolve into companionate love and that involves the here and now neurotransmitters. It's not as exciting as passionate love, but it's associated with a deep sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, and contentment. The feeling that another person's life is deeply entwined with your own just gives one so much feeling of safety and calmness and happiness. 
So we need to recognize that just because you're no longer passionate about your partner doesn't mean the relationship is over. It could be a sign that the relationship is moving to a new place that is enduring and in some ways it's even better than the passionate phase of love. I love that. And it explains a lot and it's kind of, you know, you, you hear a lot about, you know, the fireworks and the, the right. butterflies in the stomach and then it gets to a point where you see marriages that um, just go into this dull phase and it's like, oh, I'm not excited anymore. I know what I know what to expect and you've just clearly identified that. So thank you. Um, and, and, and I can just say once you enter the companionate phase of love, it's possible to bring back echoes of the passionate phase by getting your dopamine system activated with your partner. And essentially what that means is exposing yourself to novel stimuli, things that are new. And that's why going on vacation with your partner is often a time where that passion is reignited. It has to do with putting yourself in unfamiliar novel circumstances. I love that. Daniel, as we come to the end of the podcast, I want to ask you the same thing I ask all my guests, and that is, if you could pick one piece of advice that you could give somebody that they could use to dramatically increase their human potential, what would that be? That is very easy. Um, It's something that has been known since ancient times. The most important thing in life is to know yourself. You've got to understand who you are, what, what your goals are, what your limitations are, what's going on inside of you that's orchestrating your life. And one of the biggest ways to do that is to understand how your brain works. Oh, that was the best thing that you could have said. Thank you so much. Where can we find more about you and this amazing book? Uh, my website is danielzlieberman.com, and uh, the book is on sale on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble. Um, it's all over the place. And, and Audible. I, I think people will yes. really enjoy it and learn a lot about their brain. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, and I wish you the best in luck in your, you know, if you ever write another book or in all your research that you do. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thanks, Louisa. It's been great.